the text today as we're continuing our way through Matthew's gospel, or the gospel according to Matthew, is from Matthew 11, and you'll find that on page 816 of your pew Bible, and you will want to follow along with a a Bible today. Page 816 of your pew Bible, Matthew chapter 11, verses 20 through 30. This is the word of God. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Church, this is the word of God. You may be seated. Let's pray for understanding this morning. Father in heaven, we we ask you, that you would reveal Jesus Christ to us this morning. As our Savior has told us, we are totally dependent on you for that. So Father in heaven, Lord of heaven and earth, reveal Christ to us this morning in his word. Help us to see him clearly. Jesus, as you were revealed to us by your word, would you reveal to us the Father? You've told us that you are the way. We want to commune with the Trinity. And so we, we seek you, God, this morning in your word. Help us to listen. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, there is a, many of you know this because you've been a Christian for a long time, and some of you are new to Christianity, but, but there's a complexity to Christianity. And that complexity keeps thinking believers 
coming back to the well of God's word to admire it and to study it and to mine its depths. And at the same time, there is a beautiful simplicity to Christianity, isn't there? The call of Jesus Christ that we read, that simple call, come to me. There there is nothing complex about that. A toddler can understand those words. Come to me. Christianity is complex because sometimes there are truths that don't seem to align with one another. And it's simple because those truths in and of themselves are easy to understand. And so so we're going to see that this morning, these these two truths. Here's, Here's the first one. Humanity is held responsible for their response to the gospel. Right? We... We know that's true, and we see that in the text. And the second truth is that God is sovereign in salvation. Both of those things are true. Human responsibility, we understand. Right? It's tangible. We experience it every day. We hold people accountable for their actions. In the world, if you commit a crime, you're held responsible In the world, if you work hard, usually you're rewarded. Humans are held responsible for their actions. Humans are held responsible for their choices every day. We understand that, don't we? But it's also true that God is sovereign over the world. He rules over all of creation. We understand that too. How do I know that you understand that? Well, you pray to God. When you pray to God, you're acknowledging that God is mighty, that he is powerful, and he has the ability, and he has the authority to answer your prayers. We understand conceptually that God is rightfully ruling over us, that he knows the future, that he has the power to make things happen. We pray for healing. Why? Because we believe that God has the power to enter into this space and this time and heal. We, we pray for governments and presidents because we believe that, that they're like streams of water in God's hand. We pray for the salvation of the lost because we believe that God saves people. So we understand God's sovereignty. Oftentimes, though, we keep these two ideas separate from one another. We like to keep God's sovereignty and human responsibility as two parallel tracks that never meet. Because that's how we, that's how we conceptualize things. We keep them separate, especially when it comes to salvation. Well, what we're going to see this morning in our text is that Jesus teaches that these ideas are compatible with one another. And that fact should lead us to praise God. What, what we're going to do this morning is simply look at the passage and ask ourselves this question, these two questions. What does it say? What does it mean? That's all we ever do, isn't it? Just verse by verse, as we walk through God's word together, what does it say? What does it mean? And, and as we do that, we're going to uncover together ten truths I'm not a Baptist anymore. I was a Baptist last week. It was three points. This week, it's ten points. 
I'm a Puritan this week. We're, we're, we're going to uncover 10 truths from this text that all together hold in tension the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of humanity. All right? And if you have a, a, a note sheet, there's a fill in the blank for you because there's a lot to kind of absorb as we walk through this together. And here, here's what I want to, to say to you as we begin this time. As far as you are able, I want you to set aside all of your presuppositions. Everything you think you know about the offer of salvation, I want you to just set it aside this morning and listen to Jesus. If you came to Jesus listening to Billy Graham, I want you to set aside Reverend Graham's teaching. All right? If you came to Jesus listening to John Vernon McGee, I want you to set aside that teaching. If it was John Piper or John MacArthur, if it was John Bunyan or John Wesley or John Calvin or any of the other famous Johns who influenced you, I want you to set aside those influences, okay? And just listen to the words of our Savior. Read them plainly. What does Jesus say and what does Jesus mean? What is he saying to us? And what my hope for you is, is what will happen to you is what happened to me as I study this text this week. You will be humbled. You will be humbled by the depths of the gospel. And your response to God will just be simple thanksgiving. Well, let's start. Jesus begins our lesson this morning by pronouncing these three woes on the cities that he's been ministering in. A woe is a word that just means what it sounds like, right? It's, it's onomatopoeic. It's like buzz. It's a somber warning. Whoa, like, like what you would say to a horse who's about to run over a cliff. Whoa, right? Woe unto you because there is woe, more woe in that place where you're headed. The, the woes that Jesus gives here are directed at three cities in particular. Chorazin in Bethsaida in verse 21, and Capernaum in verse 23. Matthew tells us in verse 20 that these are the cities where most of Jesus' miraculous signs had been done. So, so this was Jesus' home region, right? This was, this was home field advantage for Jesus. These are the places that he worked to show people he was the Christ. Think, think about last week. Think about what we've been reading in Matthew. The things that have happened in these cities. The blind have been given sight. The dead have been raised. Lepers have been cleansed. The mute have been given a voice. Demons have been cast out. All of that was in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies. What did All of those signs were to point to Jesus as the Christ. The people of these cities have seen all of these things happening. And they've heard the accompanying message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. And yet they haven't, they haven't repented. You see that? Look at verse 20. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done, because why? They did not repent. They've seen the coming of the kingdom. And they haven't repented. And because of their failure to repent, Jesus is pronouncing woes over them. 
He's saying they will receive judgment from God. They will be under the wrath of God for their failure to repent. Well, what what truths can we draw from that this morning? Here's the first one. Repentance is necessary for salvation. Do you see that in the text? You, You can know Jesus as a great teacher. But if you do not repent, if you do not turn from your sin, if you do not humble yourself and receive him as your all, you will not be saved. Repentance is necessary for salvation. Another truth that we can draw from our text is is the second one on your sheet. Repentance is every person's responsibility. How do we know that? Well, when judgment day comes, Jesus says God is going to hold these people responsible. So they're responsible. They're they're responsible because of their lack of response to Christ. Bethsaida and Chorazin and Capernaum have been given all the signs that point to Jesus as the Christ, and yet they did not repent and receive him as the Christ. And because of that choice, Jesus says they will be held responsible. Repentance is the responsibility of the individual. A third truth we see from this text is, is number three, there is greater judgment for those who hear the gospel and reject it than for those who never hear it at all. Notice how these cities are held to a higher standard. Do you see that in verses 20 through 24? They're held to a higher standard than the cities who did not see Jesus working. Look at verse 21. If the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented. Verse 23. If the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained. They would have repented. These Jews that Jesus is speaking to were offered something that the Canaanite Gentiles did not have. And to whom much is given, much is expected. That there's an expectation that the Jews who met the Christ would receive him. But because they did not receive him, they're held to a greater responsibility. That their punishment is greater. Look at verse 22. It will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And look at verse 24. It will be more tolerable on the day of judgment than for the land of Sodom, or for the land of Sodom. So so, so just walk with me here. What we can conclude is that while repentance is necessary and repentance is our responsibility, there are also varying degrees of judgment. There are varying degrees of punishment in hell. All who reject the king are there. But it is more tolerable for those who never heard about Jesus than for those who did hear about him and rejected him. Now, now we don't don't know what that looks like. Okay, so so don't write a book about that. We don't know what that looks like. There are not Dante's Inferno-type descriptions in the Bible. It could simply be that the punishment is the same, but, but those who heard the gospel and rejected it have a greater awareness 
of, of, of God's wrath towards them. But it's also, this is also true, there's the simple fact that they've committed a greater sin. To hear that the Father has offered His Son in exchange for your sin and then to reject that offer. There's nothing worse than that. And so, and so there's no greater punishment than what is in store for the sin of rejecting Christ. That, that should help you answer that age-old question that you hear in, in college. Well, what, what about the tribesmen on the remote island who never hears the gospel? Jesus is teaching us here that those tribes people are judged for their failure to worship God. Romans 1 teaches that as well. If they die without Christ, their punishment is hell. And there will be no good for them there. It's not like, there's, it's not like a consolation prize. This lesser judgment is not good. There will be no reward. It's not something light. They will receive judgment for every action that was in rebellion against God. But their judgment is less strict than yours if you reject Christ. Their judgment is less strict than what is coming to our neighbors who have the gospel available to them. It will be more tolerable for the tribesmen in the South Pacific on the day of judgment than it will be for you who have the Bible and you have heard the gospel and yet don't repent. Both receive judgment. Okay? Both do. But the one to whom the gospel was, was preached has a greater responsibility to receive it. So here's a simple application for you from these three points. I hope you could probably draw this conclusion yourself. Repent. Amen? Repent and follow Jesus. Turn from your sin and follow Jesus. Christianity's simple, isn't it? There's something else I want you to see as we're walking through this text. Something connected to these if statements. Some of you might have already Uncover this. Look again at verses 21 and 23. If Christ had done the same miracles in these Gentile cities, they would have repented. Do, do we see that in the text? They would have repented. Jesus says that plainly. Tyre and Sidon would have put on sackcloth and ashes. Saddam would, uh, Sodom would not have had fire rain down on it in Genesis 19. If Jesus had gone to these other cities. Jesus is saying they would have repented. That tells us two more truths. Here's number four. It's going to take us some work to get to number five, so be patient. Here's number four. God knows exactly what is needed to persuade people to repent and believe. Do you believe that? God knows exactly what it takes to persuade you to turn and follow Christ. God knows that if he sent Jesus to Tyre and Sidon and Sodom, and if Jesus had done his miracles there, the people would have repented. And while that's true, God did not send Jesus to those cities. 
Instead, he sent Jesus to the cities that would not repent. But if the other cities would have repented, and here's, here's my question as I'm reading this, if the other cities would have repented, then why didn't Jesus go to those cities instead of the places that he knew would try to stone him? Well, there's only two conclusions this can lead us to, and you see this as the dilemma in your notes. God is either unjust for not having done these miracles among the Gentiles, or God is just But he owes salvation to no one. Now, while we try to sort that out, just kind of let that sit here on the front burner of your mind. But while we sort that out, let's just consider that dilemma, all right? Let's consider the the cities that Jesus mentions. And I think he's very intentional in this particular cities that he chooses to bring to our attention. Think about Sodom. Was God just to destroy Sodom? Was that right for God to do? If if you know the story of Sodom, you you know what this city was like. This was a vile city. It was objectively wicked. If you read Genesis 19 to anybody in the world in their language, they will say Sodom was wicked. Anybody. Anybody. Moses tells us it was all the men of the city who were involved in that wickedness. Young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. All of them wanted to harm the guests of Lot who were angels. Genesis 13, 13 says that the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. Another question then, do the wicked deserve judgment? They do. So was it just then for God to punish Sodom? It was. God does not owe the wicked salvation. And how about Tyre and Sidon? Isaiah 23.9 says that they are judged for their pompous pride they were enemies of God's people and they took pride in themselves rather than in the God of creation so was it just then for God to judge them it was Sodom and Tyre and Sidon rightly and justly received the righteous judgment of God And yet, if, if God had been merciful, and if he had sent Jesus Christ to them to perform those miracles and to teach them, Jesus is teaching us here that they would have repented. They would have been spared. Even so, did God owe them that mercy? He did not. That's the definition of mercy, isn't it? The withholding of right, just punishment. That's what mercy is. That's why it's called mercy. God did not owe salvation to Tyre. He did not owe salvation to Sidon or to Sodom. 
And God did not owe salvation to Bethsaida or Chorazin or Capernaum. God does not owe salvation to the wicked. Because all are wicked. Because all have sinned. And all fall short of the glory of God. Because we're all born as rebels against God. He doesn't owe mercy to anyone. Not even you and me. That's the fifth truth this morning then. Because all sin against God, it is his divine prerogative to offer or withhold mercy. You might have caught that in Exodus 33 this morning as we were listening to Amy read. Exodus 33, 19. God said to Moses, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I show mercy. Mercy is God's prerogative. God could have shown mercy to Tyre and Sidon and Sodom, and he could have sent Jesus Christ hundreds of years earlier, but he didn't. Praise be to God. We praise him for his holiness and his righteousness. We praise him for his mercy and his grace. He is right in all he does. Now know this, too. In God's good and perfect timing, the gospel is going to go to Tyre and Sidon. Read the book of Acts. And those people will come to repent and know Jesus as their Savior. Just as Jesus said they would. You, you can read that, and I encourage you to read that. And you will, you will, you'll be overjoyed at seeing God's work in, that, in that, those cities on that, and on that island. But for now, we can just know this from what Jesus is telling us. We can trust God's plan. We can praise God for his sovereignty. You know why? Because it's exactly what Jesus does. Jesus is not upset He's not troubled by the sovereignty of God. He takes joy in it. He delights in it. He's thankful for God's good and perfect rule over all things, even in salvation. So that's truth number six. Jesus is thankful for the Father's sovereignty in salvation. Look at verses 25 and 26 with me in our text this morning. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Look again at verse 25. Who is doing the hiding and revealing? It's the Father, isn't it? The Father is. Look again. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things. And you keep going. You have revealed these things. The actor there is God the Father. Well, that leads us to the next question. What's being hidden? The knowledge of Christ. The knowledge of Christ that leads to repentance and faith. Look again at the context of of, of where we are. Jesus is pronouncing woes on these cities that have rejected him and not repented. 
Now he's saying that the reason that they responded to the gospel with unbelief has at least something to do with the Father hiding these things from them. And this, friends, is where those difficult truths of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility come to intersection together, isn't it? We know, just step back for a moment and think about your experience as a Christian, your experience sharing your faith with others, or maybe even your experience in finally coming to Christ after a long time. We know from experience and we know from Scripture that people who don't repent and follow Jesus don't do so because their hearts are hard. Right? They don't repent because they don't want to follow Jesus. They totally and freely reject Him. They don't repent because they love sin more than they love Jesus. And that's true. And they're held responsible for that sin of unbelief. In these towns that Jesus has been performing these kingdom-affirming, God-exalting, prophecy-fulfilling signs in for months, some of these people had, had Jesus in their home. Some of these people had Jesus heal their bodies. And they didn't repent and believe. They didn't respond in faith and in repentance. And they're held responsible for that. That's the human responsibility side of things. And those evidences alone make it right for Jesus to pronounce these woes of judgment coming their way. But Jesus is also telling us, just as plain as day, there is no way you can explain verse 25 away. It's also true that the Father hid the knowledge of Christ from them. Why would God do that? Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, God works things out this way for this reason, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Well, we can now record truth number seven. We get this one from verse 25. Number seven, the Father reveals the knowledge of Christ to some and not others. The Father reveals the knowledge of Christ to some and not others. To the wise and understanding, he's talking about their, uh, pe- people who believe they are righteous and can find salvation on their own. To them, the Father hides these things. But to the little children, he reveals these things. Now, who are these little children? Because if you're like me, I want to be one of these These little children. Well, these are the poor in spirit from the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5. The ones who know they have nothing to bring to God. Nothing to offer Him in exchange for salvation. These are the children that the Father reveals salvation to because only they can receive it. I think Jesus says this here because He's he's encouraging His disciples. He's talking specifically about His disciples and to His disciples. In our text last week, Matthew 10, 42, Jesus called the disciples little ones. Do you remember that? 
Matthew 10, 42, and whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he's his disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. You see that? Little ones and disciples are one and the same. They are those who have received Christ. They are the children of the Father. Jesus is saying that the Father has revealed the truth of the gospel to them. Jesus is thankful to the Father for his disciples. He's saying that publicly. Can you imagine being a disciple? Being right there with Jesus? And Jesus is telling the crowds, I'm thankful for these. I thank you, Father, for these these little ones. It's an encouragement to them. But this is also consistent with what we see in Matthew 16. I want to jump ahead for just a second. Because this same truth of God's revealing the truth of Christ to the disciples is very evident and plain for us in Matthew 16, 15 through 17. Jesus is talking to his disciples up on a mountainside. And he says to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but who? But my Father, who is in heaven. You see that the parallel? The Father reveals the Christ. Who revealed the truth about Jesus to Peter? The Father did. The Father revealed the Christ to Peter. It wasn't Peter's wisdom. It wasn't Peter's understanding that figured it all out. We know that about Peter, don't we? It wasn't his good decision-making or his keen sense of awareness. The Father revealed it to him. If you're a Christian, do you know why you repented of your sins? Do you know why you're following Jesus as the Christ? It happened because the Father, working through the Spirit, revealed the truth about Jesus to you. In the same way, the Father revealed the Christ to Peter. In the same way, the Father has revealed Christ to all his little ones. He's revealed Christ to you. What should our only response be? Thank you. Thank you. That's why Jesus gives thanks here. He gives thanks in verse 25. And Jesus is before the Father right now, giving thanks to the Father for revealing Christ to you. He's your advocate. He intercedes for you. He praises the Father when you can't. He gives thanks to the Father when you don't have it in you. Jesus says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. He's praising the Father for his sovereignty over all things. The Father is Lord. He's master over heaven and earth. That's first century language for universe. Everything. That's all encompassing. There is nothing else besides heavens and earth. All power is with the Father. All glory is with the Father. The Father is Lord over everything, including your salvation. And Jesus is comforted by that truth. He's comforted. It leads him to praise. Friends, this truth should lead you to give thanks to. Thank the Father for revealing something to you that you could never have uncovered on your own. Praise Him. 
Jesus praises God because it reveals the nature and character of God. Did you know that? When God shows his mercy, God is glorified. See that in verse 26? Such was your gracious will. The NIV says it pleased God to do it this way. The the New American says it is pleasing in the Father's sight. So there's truth number eight. It's kind of a corollary to number seven, but it's just so precious. We have to write it down. Salvation is according to the gracious will of the Father. Why is God pleased to do it this way? I just said it because it glorifies God. It's it's according to his gracious will. Look at Isaiah 30, 18. This pretty neat verse. Isaiah tells us there that the Lord exalts himself when he shows mercy to you. God is glorified when he shows mercy to you. You get to see the full picture of the nature and character of God when you see the mercy of God. His mercy leads us to praise him. Friends, I I know some of you may be feeling uneasy with this right now. And so I want to just pause for a moment and encourage you. We shouldn't be troubled by this. We shouldn't be troubled that there is one who is Lord over heaven and earth in all that is in it. We should be comforted. We should be comforted that there is one who is in control because it means we have someone to pray to. It means we have someone to pray to who has the power to answer our prayers. Amen? Amen. We have one that we can trust with the future. We have one who is more faithful than we are. We have one who loved us in this way. He sent his own son to us. Praise him for his mercy. Praise him for his authority. Praise him for his power. Are you ready for another truth? Here's number nine. One cannot come to the Father without knowing Christ. All of these things are true. We see this one in verse 27. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. The Son, we've seen this through the text, the Son preaches the kingdom. Right? We've seen that all throughout Matthew. The Son preaches the kingdom, but it is the Father who gives us eyes and ears to see the truth of the kingdom. The Father reveals His Son to the little ones. And then the Son, as Jesus says, the only one who really knows the Father, the Son reveals the Father to these same people. So you can't get to the Father apart from the Son. That means Jesus is the only way. Jesus is the only way to have access to the Father. Jesus is the way. There is no other way. So that's number nine. One cannot come to the Father without knowing Christ. Are you still with me? So we have these nine enormous truths. These are big, aren't they? These are enormous truths that we have to hold in tension with one another as Christians. Not, not that we would be at tension with one another, but these truths are at tension with one another, and as Christians, we have to hold them. All right? Jesus is the only way to salvation. That's true. Amen? Amen. And we've already seen that every individual is held responsible for their response to Jesus. 
But our reception of Jesus is dependent on God's revealing him to us. And our knowledge of the Father is dependent on Jesus revealing him to us. And all of this is according to the gracious will of God. But friends, we're not finished. We haven't gotten to verse 28 yet. Jesus is not finished teaching us this morning. And I love what he does next. Just when we, in verses 20 through 27, have become humbled. And just when we are in fear and awe at God, at his majesty, Jesus says something else that is true. He gives us number 10, and it's a simple invitation. Look at verse 28. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Well, this is good news, friends. Here's truth number 10. The offer of salvation in Jesus Christ is free to all. Amen? Amen? Who's Jesus speaking to here? All who labor and are heavy laden. There's no qualifications there. Does he say, come all who are predestined to come to me? No, he says, come all who labor and are heavy laden. Does he say, come all of you elect from before time began? He doesn't. Don't presume upon God. He says, come all who labor and are heavy laden. The gospel is for all who will listen. When Jesus says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, this really is a true and genuine offer to anyone who hears him. True and genuine. Stamped with his words. He's calling all who are weary to come and find rest in him. Some of you might be thinking that because of what Jesus says in verse 25, that what he says in verse 28 can't possibly be a true and genuine call. Or the flip side of that. Because of what verse 28 says, verse 25 can't mean what it plainly says. You know what that is? That is the pride of humanity trying to outmaneuver God's revealed word. As Christians, we must believe both that the Father is the one who reveals the true nature of Christ because that's what Jesus told us. And as Christians, we must believe that the call of Christ is free and clear to all who will listen to him because that's what Jesus says. There's no limits to this call. This call is to go out into all the world from from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to Eastern Europe and Western Europe and Northern and Southern Europe to the entire, entire continent of Asia from Moscow to Japan from Siberia to India to Australia and all the islands in between to all of North America and all of South America everywhere people are burdened and where's that? Everywhere. Everywhere people are burdened, this call is for everyone. From the palest white guy to the blackest black gal. And everyone and every shade in between. To the richest of the 1% to the poorest of the 99. The call is to go to everyone. Why? Because everyone 
is burdened, and everyone is discontented, and everyone is restless. Everyone murmurs and complains. Everyone outside of Christ is trying to find rest in things other than God, and they're not finding it. They'll never find it because they're enslaved to sin. And so Jesus calls all to him. True rest, true rest, true rest for the weary soul. And that can only be found in Jesus Christ. The gospel call is free for everyone. And here is what the gospel call is. Look at verse 29. Take my yoke upon you. This is Jesus speaking. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. It's a call to exchange our yoke, our burdens, our striving for rest in Christ. Jesus' yoke here, if you look, it's his teaching. It's, it's discipleship. He says, take my yoke and learn from me. Do you see that? Take my yoke and learn from me. To come to Jesus, to take his yoke, means to come as his disciple, to commit to follow him, to commit to learn from him, to learn the way, the way of righteousness provided only in him, only through him. To receive Christ, to follow Christ, is to find joy and rest living in the presence of God. What Jesus says here is just an echo of what we heard earlier, isn't it? Back when we read Exodus, you heard what God said to Moses, and he said, my presence will go with you, and I'll give you rest. Same God. Same God. To yoke yourself to Jesus and to follow him, to listen to him and learn from him is to live your life resting from your own quest for righteousness. Rest in Christ is a rest from sin and pride, from, from the, the anxiety that comes with thinking that you can control things. Rest in Christ. Rest in the things he taught us today. Right? Rest in him. In Christ is the fullness of God. In Christ is joy and peace and rest. In Christ is thankfulness to the Father for his sovereignty. So come to Jesus. Listen to Jesus. Follow Jesus. Study Jesus. Put your faith in him. Learn from him how to live in that faith. Be thankful for the Father's work. Be woeful of your own sin and come and find rest in Jesus. Amen. Let's pray thanksgiving to our Father this morning. Oh, Father, thank you.